All right, well, if you have your Bibles, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 17. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 17. I'll say this brief prayer that we normally sing. Spirit of wisdom, open my eyes again. Spirit of wisdom, fill up my heart again. Spirit of wisdom, have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now if anyone, or I'm sorry, chapter 2 verse 5, sorry. You're like, what? Okay. Um, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may become overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have been forgiven, if I have been forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would be so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I should have had you all stand there, but I'm a little bit, I stood, so I'm good. All right. Um, So we're continuing our series in the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, if you're new with Crosspoint, um, here's the way we go through the book of the Bible, or here's the way we do our sermons, is we open the book of the Bible uh, that we believe God has called us to study together, and verse by verse, uh, we study that Word of God together as it applies to our life, and we ask God's Spirit to fill us, to renew us, to do His work in our life through the Word given to us on that day or in that given week. And uh, one of the temptations that we have if we weren't doing a study of the book of the Bible is kind of to skip the more hard-to-understand passages or more the difficult passages because it's just too difficult. I can't understand it, so I'm going to skip and I'm going to move ahead or I'm going to go to something I'm more comfortable with. But when we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, we can't do that. As your pastor, as a preacher, I can't do that. Sometimes I wish I could because they're difficult, but I can't. But here, I do believe God has for us a precious word that, if overlooked, would cause harm upon us. So, Paul, 
Uh, it deals with a number of things, but we've entitled this sermon, uh, this sermon uh, Forgiveness and Triumph, because we see the forgiveness that comes from the church when they're called to forgive a sinner who repents, and we also see the triumph of Christ as he leads us in the procession of his victory over sin, Satan, death, and hell. Now, the first part of this passage, you have to remember that Paul is writing it as a letter. And if you weren't with us in our introduction to 2 Corinthians, uh, you, you would know that actually 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter of a four-part series that the Apostle Paul has written. We don't have two of the letters. These are the two letters that we have. We know that the Apostle Paul spent a year and a half with the church of Corinth, which was a long time for the Apostle Paul to spend with the church. We also know that if Netflix were to produce a series on the church of Corinth, it would be called Church Gone Wild. It was Paul's most problematic church that he dealt with. He spent the most time, and if you were to add up all the words that he wrote to them, just as we have them here from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, it would be, without a doubt, Paul's longest epistle. And so Paul spent a lot of time for this church because he loved the church. He planted the church. He established sound doctrine in the church. He raised up elders in the church. He labored among those that were there. And we also know that the church of Corinth at one point has sought to reject the Apostle Paul. That there was someone in the church that shared that they did not believe that Paul was worthy to be an apostle and no one stood in his defense. And now we have this word of 2 Corinthians seeing that the church has actually walked in repentance of that and the majority believe that the apostle Paul has every right to, to uh, pastor them, to give them correction, to shape the direction and ministry of the church. And then we also see there's a situation of church discipline. In all likelihood, it's a church discipline upon the person who read, led the rebellion against the Apostle Paul. Now, when I say the word church discipline, you think, ooh, that word doesn't sound right with me, doesn't sit well with me. But I want to argue today that church discipline is a commitment to holiness among God's people. Church discipline is a commitment to love among God's people. It's a commitment for care, protection, grace. And I know that when we live in our world, church discipline has no worldly authority. Everything of church discipline today is completely built upon influence that God gives us to pour into one another. And that influence, though, is powerful some of the greatest influence that can be given. It's not an influence where someone is involuntarily submitted to it, but will voluntarily say, I trust you. I'm willing to listen to you. I'm willing to do what you said for the goodness and grace of my heart and my soul. A friend of mine, he's actually the pastor at Cross Point Church in Peachtree City, Georgia. He says, Church discipline is the humble, courageous act of doing whatever it takes to restore an unrepentant, professing Christian and covenant member of the church to God and to the church 
in love. As I raise a family and as a father discipline my children, I know that sometimes the behavior can be so harmful that if left unchecked, will wreak havoc within the family. The same is true in the church. Those situations that don't just cause harm to the person, but to the whole body are situations that demand that those who are in authority address it. But there's a particular way that they're called to address it. If you follow the guidelines of scriptures, you see that Jesus addresses this in the book of Matthew, where he says, if someone has has sinned against you, then you're called to go with them one to one. If someone comes to me and says, Pastor Ryan, so-and-so sinned against me, I'll listen to them, but I'll say, did you go to them? Have you went to them and addressed it with them? The second guideline of church discipline is if, they, if you go to them and they will not receive you, they will not regard your word, then you go to somebody else and you tell them and you say, will you join me as we confront this person who's walking in unrepentant sin? And if they don't heed that warning, then they'll go to the church and the leadership of the church, the elders. And if the elders go to this person and they hear this person out and they understand the situation and they see that this person is still walking in unrepentant sin and desiring rebellion, then they will make decisions based upon what's good for the church and what's good for that person for their restoration. If that person refuses the restoration, then they're put out of the body of Christ, put out of the church for the sake of their soul so that they might see that they're in need of repentance. Now, we saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as the Apostle Paul set precedent for it. It wasn't the same situation, but there was a situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of sexual sin. He says it was a sexual sin that was so significant that the world reviled it. And the sexual sin that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 was a man was sleeping or had uh, an affair with his stepmother. And he said, and you're proud. He said, rather than celebrate it, you need to grieve it. You need to let this man be released to Satan so that even if his body is destroyed, it might lead to the salvation of his soul. And so there is precedent for church leadership to apply the lack of fellowship, a lack of community, a lack of everything being normalized for this person because it's not normal. We can't go on with business as usual. But it's also important that the church pursues whoever it is that's in sin or indiscretion with utmost care and love and concern. Several years ago, um, as I was pastoring Cross Point Lake Nona, and Cross Point is planting several Cross Point churches throughout the city, and uh, even one up in Peachtree City, Georgia, we considered planting um, uh, Cross Point Espanol. Cross Point Espanol was birthed by a vision to reach Orlando, and if you're birthing a vision to reach Orlando, you have to think about the Spanish-speaking community and the heart language by which they worship God and understand God. And so we envisioned and dreamed of Crosspoint Espanol. Someone who was instrumental in that was a man named Omar Rivas. Omar uh, was, uh, he started a small group of Spanish speakers and he led that small group. 
In fact, Omar uh, dreamed of seeing this church started before there was even a pastor for it, before we even knew of Miguel Medina, who is the church planter for Cross Point Espanol, Omar dreamt of this church. He and his family, they, they labored alongside of Cross Point to plant this church. But somewhere along the way, Omar started to drift. I've used his name with permission, by the way. Omar started to drift. He started to become disillusioned. He was disillusioned by the church. He was disillusioned with his marriage. He was disillusioned with his family. And he certainly was disillusioned by his faith. And so he began to retreat. So he worked with his wife. We also brought him together for a meeting where he confessed these things and shared these things. We laid out a plan for God to begin to work and bring renewal in his heart. And he agreed to it in principle, but he decided with his actions that he didn't want any part of it. And so the church continued to pursue him. I continued to pursue him. He wouldn't return phone calls. He wouldn't return text messages. That's normal now, by the way. <laughs> but he was rejecting any kind of movement towards him. So me and two other guys, Miguel was one of them, we showed up at his work one morning. He's an airline mechanic and he's working overnight. We knew he got out around 7.30, so we showed up at 6.30. It's still dark that morning. And we got before him in that place and we said, brother, we need you to come and listen to us so that we can help you because we're seeing where this is going and it's not good and we love you. And so he went with us. We laid out a plan for his counseling again and his growth. He said he would, but in his actions, he rejected it. And over time, I heard that his wife had divorced him, that there was some chaos that was going on in the family, but there was no opportunity for us to help, for us to serve. And so he disappeared for a little while. And then it was about a year and a half ago, right here, I saw him come through the doors of the YMCA gymnasium to go to Cross Point Espanol. And he came to me with a ferocious hug. I mean, it was the biggest bear hug you could ever feel. And in tears, he said, brother, I've been wanting to do this for a while, but brother, I've hurt you. I've hurt you and I'm sorry. And in tears, he asked for forgiveness. Later on, we met and he shared every bit of where he had sinned against God, where he'd sinned against church, and he longed to be restored. You know what our response was to him, myself, and Miguel? It wasn't, you need to be punished more. Our response was celebration. It was elation. It was that one of God's lost sons had come home. And yes, damage had been done, but it's a damage that's not irreparable. And that God can work a miracle of mercy from even someone who has professed his name, walked away, and come home again. That they would find their home in the restoration and redemption of God. It's a powerful story of the restorative, powerful story of the restorative nature of church discipline. This is why the church must be committed to church discipline. 
Because like parents of children, we must be committed to our own. If we are not committed to our own, we do not love. We are self-serving. And sometimes even in the pain, when that love is most difficult, God's love advances most powerfully. Do you hear that? When that love is most difficult, God's love advances most powerfully. Church discipline is a commitment to the holiness of God and his love for his bride and his people. So we're going to unpack this in three parts. Number one is the discipline. You're going to see that in verses 5 through 8. Number two is we're going to see the obedience. That's in verses 9 through 11. And then finally, it's going to be the triumph of Christ. And we're going to see that in verses 12 through 17. Let's look at the discipline. 2 Corinthians 2, 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So if we could be honest a minute about life and relationships, it's messy, right? I'm not even just talking about in the church. When you get in close proximity to people, you are in striking distance of pain all the time. And I don't know about you, but sometimes the hardest pains isn't sickness. It isn't physical. It's relational. It's when you feel this relational drift, this isolation, this being cut off from people's lives. People that you love hold incredible power over you because you love them. I mean, that's so strong. That's so powerful. And when that love is violated, it feels broken. It feels like it can't be restored. And sometimes that love even turns to hatred. And Paul is wanting no room for that in his church. And so Paul is the one who has been pained. He says, I haven't been pained, but really in reality he has. This pain that happened in regards to this false teacher, this one who spewed lies about him, this one that said Paul was unworthy to be an apostle, was painful for him because it led to the rejection of Paul by the church by which Paul had to do some hard work, some hard labor to see that the church would become obedient to the word of Christ that was given through him. Now, Paul was an apostle. That's a big deal. That's a messenger sent by the Lord. That was one who's seen the Lord with his own eyes. They were saying, you're not an apostle. You didn't, you didn't walk with Jesus like the other disciples did. But Paul had this conversion, a radical conversion, where he was knocked off of his high horse as a persecutor of the church, and he was shown the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And he was brought as a lost, wayward sinner home to the love of Christ, that the one whom he was persecuting is the one who forgave him. And the one who called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the one that was going to share the gospel that would spread like wildfire. By the way, we are the Gentiles. America, our country, uh, is, is found hope of the gospel because it is through the apostle Paul's work that that work has traveled to us 2,000 years later. The word of Christ moving through 
this man. He was not to be rejected. He was to be received. And he says this in verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So there was a punishment that took place as a result of this. We don't have all the letters that explains some of the details, but we know that they took steps. They took action to make sure that this person knew that what they did was harmful and they were cut off by the community of the church. But he says this punishment is enough. Why would he say that it's enough? Well, because this person had seen their sin, they've grieved their sin, and they'd sought restoration. They've seen how they've sinned against the holiness of God and it caused harm in the church. And he says, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed with exce- by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, he's pleading with him, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That Paul is, although the one who has sinned probably most against He is the one that takes the steps to say first that this man should be restored. You see, discipline, it's it's not punitive. It's not meant to be a penalty. Discipline is meant to cause someone to walk in repentance. That's the goal of discipline, is that the person would see their sin, they would walk in repentance. That means they would do a U-turn. They would change. They would turn towards Christ and be restored to him. If you discipline your kids with punitive or punishment in mind only and not their ultimate restoration, then you're doing it for some self-centered or evil motivation. The same would be true of the church because the goal of discipline is always restoration. If that's not the goal, then we not need be here because the goal is to restore a person to Christ so that we would reaffirm our love for them so that they would see the affirmation of God's love for them. I mean, God's love is powerful through us. Do you hear that? Like, there in us is the opportunity to show someone, not just our love, but the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And to not do that, to not give forgiveness, to withhold forgiveness, or to walk in unforgiveness, is to withhold the love of God, which we proclaim has been with us freely and given to us freely. So this is why we, of all people, should be the most forgiving people. Now, I've struggled with unforgiveness in my life. There have been times where I've been sinned against in a grievous way. And I've sought payback. I've sought someone's harm. They've hurt me so much that I felt entitled to withhold any love or affection from them and only wish judgment and condemnation upon them. And that's wrong. Do you know why? Because it hurt me more than it hurt them. N.T. Wright, he says, forgiveness is a two-way street. By releasing the other person from guilt, you release yourself from being crippled by their actions. See, we kind of think that, man, if we forgive them, then it's just going to give them permission to do whatever the heck they want to do again. And they've hurt me. And that way of thought, that train of thought, although it might seem justifiable, it's just poisoning your soul. It's embittering your soul. It's holding you captive by their actions. And so forgiveness 
is a two-way street. When we forgive them, we release them, but we also release ourselves. It's the spirit-empowered work where Christ, where, where the work of Christ is shown to us for the forgiveness that we've received. We espouse a greater forgiveness than any forgiveness that we can offer. It's that Jesus Christ has forgiven me past, present, and future. And so I must be obedient to that. And that's the obedience that we see here. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So we forgive so that the church, so that others, so that people won't be drawn down by the bitterness of unforgiveness that stews in our soul. Can I be honest? Everybody in here probably struggles with forgiveness to some degree or another. I don't know who it is that hurt you. I don't know what it was that hurt you. But I know that there's a lie of Satan that says you can't forgive them. You can't give them that. That's dignity that they don't deserve. And you know what? He's probably right. And so you can justify it. But do you know what the work of Christ tells us? It says that it's dignity that you don't deserve, but he gave it to you anyway. He gave it to you when you were undeserving, when you were an undeserving sinner in need of God's grace. It wasn't that you were just unrepentant or unwilling. You were so far off course that he had to go and find you and chase you down and bring you back. You were walking out of work that morning and it was him who stood there and said, I forgive you. This isn't like some secret that God has kept. This is a secret that is outlandish and it is littered in the page of scriptures. It's there. It permeates every aspect of the Bible. And we must be obedient to it as children of God. Forgiveness is a command. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's no reason why we shouldn't forgive someone else because God in Christ has forgiven us of the worst offenses. Now you can start trying to justify yourself by saying that they're worse than you. And maybe they are in the world's eyes. But your sin against the holy, righteous God is just as treasonous, it's just as rebellious as anyone's sin against you because God is perfect and you sinned against someone who is completely perfect in every way. And what was his response? It was coming down as God the Son, God's perfect Son, and it was dying the death that you deserved in order that you might have restoration, renewal, and everlasting life through God's Son, even while you don't deserve it. Second Corinthians or chapter 2, verse 11. Why? Why should we give this forgiveness? Why should we be obedient to Paul's commands? God's commands, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. 
for we are not ignorant of his designs. Do you know that one of the ways that Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy in the church, in the world, is by a church's unfaithfulness and disobedience. That the greatest way that you could stand against the work of the devil, that the greatest way that you could stand against the work of the enemy is to be obedient to Christ in all things. That's the greatest way. When you are walking in faithfulness and obedience, and I know it's not perfect because I wrestle with it myself, but when my eyes are fixed on Jesus and I'm walking towards him, there is no fiery dart that can get through the protection that Jesus has offered because I'm falling after him and I am perfectly loved and cherished and cared for by him. And there is nothing that the Satan, that the enemy can do to outwit that. But yeah, he's got a plan for your disobedience. And what he wants to do is he wants to destroy because this person who might become overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, he's going to go into despair and Satan's going to kill him while he's down. And you who might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow one day, Satan is going to seek to kill you while you're down. He is seek to cut you off so that you would find no hope, no redemption, no repentance, no restoration in Christ. But that's a lie because it's always there because the cross proves true. And that's why we come to this next part of the passage here of triumph. Verses 12 and 13. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Paul gets a little bit scattered here in, in, in his train of thought. Remember, he's writing a letter and, you know, letters represent life and life can be scattered, can it? But actually what he's getting at here is that he's, he's bringing them an awareness of even this own pain that he endured on their behalf because of them. So Paul didn't visit the church of Corinth and the reason why Paul didn't visit the church of Corinth wasn't because he wanted to break his promises, as Pastor Josiah said last week. But part of the reason why he didn't visit the church of Corinth is because he knew that they had caused him pain. And he knew that he would cause them pain as a result of it. And so the only result of him going to the church of Corinth was pain, pain that he's still feeling here in Troas as God opens a door for his ministry of the gospel to advance. Now, God gave him favor there in Troas. But Paul's thoughts are on the church in Corinth. So it's hard for Paul to be invested and involved in this open door of the gospel while his heart is consumed with this restlessness, this anxious thoughts of his church, his beloved church in Corinth. And he wants to hear how they're doing. And Titus is the one who's going to bring him this message. So he goes to the meeting place in Macedonia and leaves the open door of the gospel to hear about how the church is doing in Corinth. Are they walking in faithfulness? Titus, tell me, are they walking in faithfulness? Are they seeking after the Lord? And the good news is that Titus gave him that message. Yes, yes, they have sought repentance and they're walking in the Lord. I don't know if you've ever had kind of the, this, this duality in, in, your, in your thoughts and in your actions to where on one hand, everything seems to be so good. And that should be the narrative 
Like the gospel advancing in Troas should be the narrative that is above all other things. Forget the church of Corinth, I'm just going right here. But there's this lingering thing in the background that just does not allow you to fully enter into something that's seemingly obvious. I was reading a sermon from a pastor named Ray Stedman who was a pastor in California some years ago. And he talked about this in his own life. He said he was preaching at Seattle Pacific University to 2,400 college students. And there was this revival of place that took, uh, the revival of, of faith that took place in their lives. And when he woke up the next morning, his thoughts didn't go towards the revival that took place at Seattle Pacific University among these college students, but it went to his second daughter who had for years been struggling with her faith and began to walk further and further away. And he says it was so hard to be there because this was the thing that caused this restless angst in my soul. You know that. You've been through that enough. You've loved, if, if you're human, you've loved someone enough to have felt that. And now I want us to feel that not just in our own circumstances outside of faith, but I want to feel that within the faith. Someone who walks away from the faith is so painful but man, to hear that they've come home is the most rejoicing thing in all the world. And then Paul transitions here to the triumph of Christ. And I've never studied this passage. I've never had an opportunity to read it beyond more than just reading it. But I was forced to really look at this and see that the beauty that's within what Paul writes here. I'm, I'm gonna read it to you. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So if you were a Roman citizen if you lived in Rome, you would have knew what Paul was talking about with a triumphal procession. The general and his army had been gone for years. And they're coming back into town. And they've had a massively successful victory. And you're looking for your loved ones who's coming home from war. And so the streets are filled with people that are rejoicing and celebrating this triumphal procession. The senators and the uh, advisors and everyone of the who's who is out to, to give glory and honor to this Roman general who has been triumphant. And in front of the general, as he goes into uh, the city or as he goes into a town, there would have been priests that had this fragrance, this incense that was burnt as an offering to the gods to thank them for their victory. There would have been sacrifices to the gods in order to thank them for their victory. And they would have went ahead in a triumphal procession. And the general would have been the centerpiece of this procession. And around him are the heroes of war, are his faithful with him. And it is this picture of, of absolute celebration and victory for Rome to say that Rome is powerful. Rome is the ruler of the known world. There is nothing that can stop us. 
behind the general after he would pass through, there would be actors and props and playwrights, and they would be actually making this kind of dramatized. They would, they would show what took place in the battle, and they would show this Roman victory so that the people that were there would see and get into it and feel the victory in their blood. And then behind them, there would have been the captives. It was the king of the enemy territory. It was the prince. It was the princesses. They would be bound with ropes. Many of them would be dragged behind horse and chariot. They were the ones that were going to be led to the slaughter. Some would be crucified. Some would be thrown into the arena with gladiators. Some would be sold as slaves. This is the picture that Paul paints for us by just that word triumphal procession. That's the historian's version of it. But then the question comes is, well, where was Paul in the story? Where is Paul in that picture? He says that Christ leads us. There's two versions of what it might be. There's one that I tend to think it is. One is that Paul is more than conquerors in Christ, and he's one of the leaders that is next to Jesus in this triumphal procession. But if you know Paul well enough, you know he didn't have that high view of himself because he knew he was a sinner in need of a savior. He knew that he was like the captive in the back who had sinned against God in tyranny, in traitorous treason. And so Paul, I believe, viewed himself as one of those who were held captive, who was being dragged along. But Jesus wasn't a, a treacherous general of Rome. Jesus went through the city and claimed victory and deserved victory. But yet instead of taking the captives and slaughtering them, he offered them peace. How did he offer them peace? By taking the slaughter that they deserved. And so he opens up his heart to those who are undeserving of his love, who have sinned against him, who have sinned against the holiness of God. And he took the death that they deserve. He paid the punishment in full by the cross. And the picture of the triumphal procession is thanks be to God for the cross. Who set me free. Who leads me in triumphal procession. Who is the one who's redeemed me. He's the one who has bought me with a price. And if you were in the captives and you smelled the fragrances that to all of Rome smelled so good, it smelled of sweet victory. If you were the captive, it would have smelled like death to you. If you were a Roman, you would smell the sweetness of that fragrance and it would smell like life to you, vitality to you. But Jesus flips it around here. He flips it around because those who are being saved, you know this, you'll preach the gospel, you share the gospel with someone, those who are being saved, it's the aroma of life. But those who are dying, they recklessly oppose it. They want nothing of it. It's the smell of 
death and to those who are dying, the majesty of Christ smells of death. But those who are alive, well, it's life to us because of the victory that happened in Jesus, that Jesus, our general, our Adonai, our master and commander took the cross for me. And that's the procession that we have in mind. And the apostle Paul says, I'm unworthy. Who is sufficient for these things? Not I, not you, but thanks be to God, like the book of Revelation, someone can open the scroll. Someone could read the words of life and could atone for the death and can be the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive wisdom and wealth, forgiveness and honor and power. Worthy is that lamb. Worthy is he. And Paul continues with this last line of defense here. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God to speak in Christ. Some people question Paul's motivation in preaching. Was he just doing it for more money? Was he just doing it to, create, to collect another love offering? Was he a con artist? Was he trying to get people to buy his words? If that was true, then they would be cheap. But he's not like a peddler of God's word. But he says, I'm a man of, we are men of sincerity. This is our call for an authentic witness. We must be sincere. We must be filled with full assurance and conviction. We must believe by faith the truth of the gospel. If we don't, we're disqualified. We have no business proclaiming it. But by faith, we put our trust and hope as men and women of sincerity in the truth of who God is. He also says we're commissioned by God. Paul had authority. He was a man who was in authority because he was a man that was under authority. And who was his authority? It was God. Listen, I'm held accountable to God for every word that I proclaim to you, which is why I labor over the word, but I also do it with a confident trust that the one whom I'm in authority under is the one who's helping me. And then we see that it was in the sight of God. He had an audience of one. He only wanted one person's approval, and it wasn't yours, and it wasn't his church's. That's why he could do the hard things and have the hard conversations because the only person he sought for approval was God. And it allowed him to minister sincerely and authentically and under God's authority because he wasn't afraid of what man could do to him. Remember, Paul was executed in Rome. He was not afraid of death. He was not afraid of rejection. He faced it. He suffered much because of this. But in the sight of God, he was only concerned with God's pleasure upon him. And then finally, he spoke of Christ. A false teacher? How do you know a false teacher? Well, Christ is not the center of their message, quite simply. They don't have a biblical point of view that helps point to the work of Jesus Christ as the sufficiency of all things. They take all these peripheral issues and they make those the issues, but the message of Christ is that of utmost importance. And Paul's not a peddler. 
He's not one seeking selfish gain. He is one that ministers the great gospel of Jesus Christ who died, was buried, and rose again on that third day and who leads us in triumphal procession. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you that as we come to your word right now, as we come to you right now, the same offer of forgiveness that Paul gave to the church for the person who is walking away from you is the same offer you give to us today. Father God, for the person who has never thought to acknowledge you as their savior, the one who died for their sins and restored them to right relationship with God, for the person who has never thought of you as Lord, the one who is in, in all authority and his commands are for our obedience. God, to that person who's never considered your salvation or your lordship, I ask God that right now they would say to you, yes, Lord, I want to follow after you. And God, for those of us who have come and maybe we've walked for you, with you a long time, but we've just drifted, we've forgotten. We've sought things of this world that, Lord, we just, we just need you to help us. We need you to help us repent. I pray you would. And Lord, for the faithful, for those who, God, continually seek to walk in you and live in you, God, we need your help, all of us here, that you, God, would show us this triumphant procession where you've set us free, you've offered us the cross, the greatest gift, because it is in the cross that we know we have ultimate victory. It's in Jesus' name the church says, amen.